Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Well, hello. My name is Christina Ha. I'm from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, a director of their IBD Center. And this is the first in the series of four case studies where we'll be addressing knowledge gaps in the arena of biosimilars and IBD. I'm honored to introduce my colleague, Dr. Frank Scott, who's an associate professor in the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Colorado. And he's also the principal investigator of the Multicenter Crohn's and Colitis Foundation study, Decode IBD, which investigates the consequences in delays in biologic treatment for IBD patients, which is a timely topic, especially in the arena of biosimilars. So hi, Frank, how are you? And Tina, thanks so much for the uh, introduction. I'm very excited to talk to you about this really important clinical topic. Yeah, I mean, because biosimilars are part of our landscape now. And I think really the topic for today's podcast is to really understand what biosimilars are and the role they play in our IBD treatment. So we know that multiple biosimilars for infliximab and adalimumab are available or will be available very soon. And actually more will be coming for our other biologic treatments in the near future. So as a healthcare team, our responsibility, right, Frank, is to provide education and maintain quality and consistency of care to our patients. So knowing these responsibilities, how do we even broach this topic with our patients regarding biosimilars? How do you start this conversation? With the changing landscape and introduction of these agents, I, I do think it's really important that we introduce the idea of biosimilars and biooriginators when we're first discussing biologic therapies with our patients, particularly if we're considering one of the therapies for which a biosimilar currently exists. I generally like to start by explaining to them the, the concept that you know biosimilars are monoclonal antibodies that are, are nearly identical to the originator that they've been extensively studied in different patient populations with autoimmune disorders and, and found to have equivalent effectiveness and adverse risk profiles. And then reassure them that if switches were to occur during their therapy or at the start of therapy, that we're aware of the available data and understand the equivalence that has been demonstrated through prior research. I completely agree with that. And there's ample data supporting the effectiveness and safety of the biosimilars across all disease states, including Crohn's and colitis, because oftentimes our patients will say, well, that's fine and good, but I have IBD. But how do we overcome that hurdle of what you said, which is nearly identical? Because we cannot say that they're exactly identical, but nearly identical sounds kind of inferior, doesn't it, Frank? It does. And, and, and that can be one challenge. We can't use the term generic here, because there, there may be differences in protein modification and whatnot as these drugs are developed in biological cell lines. However, we have to remember a couple of key factors. One is that, uh, as you alluded to, these for them to be FDA-approved, biosimilars have to have gone through a, a rigorous testing pro process to demonstrate uh, equivalence in terms of their e efficacy and their safety profile. Two, that even the existing drugs that we currently use have over the course of their existence, infliximab is a perfect example, has undergone multiple modifications in how that drug is produced. And therefore, the infliximab that we are currently using in our patients may be not completely identical to the infliximab that was introduced and studied and FDA approved in 1997. 
Yeah. And I think that's really important because these are protein constructs. So there's just no way to create exact carbon copies of protein constructs compared to chemical compounds. So providing that level of reassurance in uh, using that analogy is I think really key. I think part of it's also still on our nomenclature. If you're seeing a patient who's about to start a biologic treatment, how do the biosimilars enter into your treatment discussion? And let's say you're seeing somebody who has moderate to severe ulcerative colitis who needs to start treatment. Are you using the term biosimilar? Are you using the term anti-TNF? How are you describing it in your shared decision-making model? That's a fantastic question. I, I think I start by discussing drugs at their class level. I always like to walk patients through the different classes and their different mechanisms of action, and then sort of like a decision tree, break it down into the subgroups. So using anti-TNFs as an example, I would describe the mechanism of action of anti-TNFs as a whole as we understand it. And then say we within anti-TNFs for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, we have several options. These include infliximab and adalimumab and golimumab. And in infliximab, there are several different variants of infliximab, all of which we think are equivalent from an efficacy and safety standpoint. I've moved away from, as biosimilars have been introduced, using trade names for medications because the trade name can be confusing for patients. They may say, you know, my doctor really wants me to have Remicade, but I'm being advised that I have to take Inflectra. Oftentimes, as we'll get to, I'm sure these decisions are being made not by at the provider level, but at the contractual level by a patient's payer or insurer. And so preparing them that infliximab with one suffix is, is equivalent to infliximab with another suffix up front, I think is really important. Yeah, I completely agree. And because at the end of the day, we're emphasizing that it's the mechanism and the delivery that is deciding the treatment. It's not the brand name. So I agree with you wholeheartedly that the tricky thing is these biosimilars do have trade names. And to remember all these trade names is actually going to add to the confusion. So sticking to using just the term infliximab, adalimumab. And to a certain degree, it's the same way that we talk about mesalamine, right? There are so many different formulations of mesalamine. We don't list all of them. We say, oh, I think you need to be treated with mesalamine. And then we prescribe that. Then we see if it's effective. So in that lens, does your monitoring for response to biosimilars differ at all from your monitoring if they're on the originator or reference product? A fantastic question. This really represents one of the areas wherein we can provide reassurance. We have to emphasize to our patients that the same treat-to-target guided care approaches that we use for a bio-originator do not change at all for a biosimilar. This includes, if we're discussing infliximab, the same pre-initiation laboratory evaluation in terms of tuberculosis screening, hepatitis B screening, documenting inflammatory markers, the same follow-up in three to four months from a biochemical standpoint, the same endoscopic evaluation. I also you know, am a proponent of considering assessing an infliximab level after induction, and we can provide reassurance to our patients that we can use the same assays to measure the concentrations of the monoclonal antibodies that are present in a biosimilar as in an originator, and we should proceed in that same direction. So by that lens, somebody who had an adverse reaction or antibodies to one biosimilar or reference product, is it okay to switch in between those? Or how do you, what do you do in those scenarios? That's a great question. In general, if somebody has had an adverse reaction that's thought to be immune-mediated or antibody-driven to a bio-originator or biosimilar for infliximab, 
we generally do not have the opportunity to switch them to another version of infliximab. That indicates that you have to consider a switch either within class or outside of class to another anti-TNF or another biologic therapy, just as we would if they only had had that reaction to the bio-originator compound. And that's the same way that I utilize it in my practice as well. And, you know, we optimize the biosimilars the exact same way. We monitor the exact same way. It's So everything in terms of the prescription to administration is the same. It's just a little bit of a difference in terms of that four little letter suffix, as well as the trade name. So just out of curiosity for people who are looking, what do they make of that four letter suffix? Is that just to differentiate that it's a biosimilar or does it actually mean anything? That's what I, That's how I explain it to them. That's so that we can keep track of which actual biosimilar or bioriginator that they are receiving. At the end of the day, the word in front of those four four letters is what matters. You are Mm -hmm. still receiving infliximab, and therefore your treatment is still infliximab. And even though these four letters may change over time because of various contractual relationships, we're still confident that the infliximab you're receiving is going to be effective. Let's say because understandably, our patients who are living with IBD, they've gone through a lot. I mean, we use the term roller coaster because they have flares and they have, um, uh, uh, and then response and then loss of response. So I know we had discussed or briefly uh, discussed that there's a lot of evidence out there that outlines the effectiveness and safety. Are there a couple studies or a couple key points from the effectiveness and safety data that you relate to, to when talking to your patients who have some concerns about being on a biosimilar? I generally will provide a few examples, uh, particularly in in European data where entire countries were switched. Norway is a perfect example and allowed for the comparison of individuals who switched from an originator to a biosimilar in infliximab to those that didn't switch and demonstrated no significant difference. Mm -hmm. And that provides reassurance. And also that since that study and others, we've had multiple other observational studies that have confirmed these findings, which has led to all of us being very comfortable with this transition. That also applies to the pregnant patient or the family planning patient, also in terms of the risks of infections, adverse effects, they're all pretty much the same. And I think one of the reassuring parts of that data is that how often do you look at studies where they're comparing two different treatment regimens and the graphs are nearly superimposed? And I think that that's actually very reassuring to show that they're not safer, they're not more effective, they're as safe and as effective, which is pretty remarkable. And this has been shown time and time again, because we usually don't see that in a lot of the studies that we utilize in IBD. This is us. You and I are pretty comfortable with biosimilars because we've been in this space for a while, but we know that there's lots of stakeholders as part of the care team. I mean, we have our nurse navigators, we have the infusion centers, the specialty pharmacies. So how do you engage your team to have a transparent but consistent message? I think it's important that you have periodic huddles to review the landscape in terms of biosimilars. It also is helpful for us as the sort of team leader, the physician that's leading this patient's care to understand what hurdles they may be appreciating with regards to infusion center recommendations and transitions to bio-originator or biosimilar from different payers, what patterns may exist currently in the landscape. Ensuring that everyone understands everyone's sort of shared experience on the, the physician side, the medical side, I think is as important to ensure smooth transitions, to ensure that there aren't delays over unnecessary pushback with regards to biosimilar switches in a, any given patient's care. I really feel strongly that we can do a disservice to our patients if there is a delay in therapy 
related to a biosimilar switch as opposed to moving forward with the transition, which, as you've already alluded to, has ample data suggesting similar equivalent to efficacy and safety. Yeah, absolutely. Because we all know it takes a village to take care of IBD. And so having that consistent messaging across all the key stakeholders is so important. And I think as we know that biosimilars are here, they're here to stay, they're not going anywhere. It's also our responsibility to equip our care teams for success and make sure that we have access to all the resources for patient support across all the various different biosimilar companies, because all of them have patient support tools. And at the end of the day, it should not be costing our patients more financially or in terms of a coverage-wise perspective to be on the biosimilars. I will say, we hear this from a lot from our patients. So they're paying a lot of money for their insurance. They're expecting quality of healthcare. How does this impact them versus our clinical practices as a whole? Who is this benefiting, having all these biosimilars in the market? Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic question. I, and I, I think if you, if you look at European data, you would, you would see that systemic impact of biosimilars has driven down costs and at the end of the day that provide that frees up money for providing services for our, for for our patients so from a societal standpoint there can be benefit i think it's harder to drill down at the individual patient level what the benefit is but i think the flip of that coin is that there is no significant difference this is the uh, equivalent therapy from an efficacy standpoint, a safety standpoint, as you mentioned, from an out-of-pocket standpoint and patient support standpoint. And it has the potential to provide benefit for, for our patients at a, a systemic level. Yeah, I agree. And I think that there's something to be said about having multiple options for the same mechanism for our patients. And I think there is something to be said about improving access universally if we can drive down the bottom line of costs because these are so expensive. And we do know that there's still in this in 2022 delays in starting patients on appropriate treatment. So I hope that in the downstream effects, we will see benefits. So with that, I can't believe we're out of time already. It's been such a great discussion, Frank. Thank you so much for your expertise and your guidance. And we hope that you as the audience are a lot more comfortable knowing the evidence. And I would like to thank our sponsors for this podcast. It was provided with educational support from Amgen and Pfizer. And there are plenty of resources and please utilize them that are available on the AGA page, especially agau.gastro.org. A lot of great biosimilar information for both patients and providers. So we'll see you for the next in this series. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.